Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our sermon series on the cross of Jesus. Together we are exploring what the cross of Jesus accomplished. Last week, the Apostle Paul answered this question with redemption. Redemption is when somebody in slavery is purchased out of slavery at great cost and restored to their original freedom and purpose. And so redemption is sometimes called ransom. Well, this morning, we are going to encounter this truth again, but this time, not from Paul, but from Peter. Peter's writing to an early church experiencing hardship. Peter addresses them as exiles in verse 1 of chapter 1. Most agree that these Christians were not literal exiles, but spiritual exiles. Their allegiance to Jesus put them out of sync with everybody else. They started to feel like strangers in their own hometown, and so Peter had to encourage them to persevere. And maybe that describes you this morning. You feel out of place. Your walk with Jesus is putting you out of sync with everyone else around you. Amen. You're weary in the faith. Well, Peter wants to encourage you to. And so let's read the text together. We'll pray and get started. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Quick note. This salvation, if you want to know what that means, look to our call to worship this morning in our worship folder. That's verses 1 through 10 of 1 Peter. It is one of the most glorious descriptions of salvation you'll find. After Peter unpacks this, he says in verse 10, considering this, so in light of this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to the prophets of old that they were serving not themselves but you, speaking to the Petrine church, and to you as well, that hope. They were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Thank Pentecost. Things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all 
your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, there's that word, ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer, the Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus and find him more glorious than before. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, this July, our family has been doing a lot of driving for various reasons and for all good reasons. We've driven to Michigan and back. My wife drove to Pennsylvania and back. And most recently, we drove from Virginia and back. And there's actually more to come. At first, these drives were adventurous and exciting. But now, all the dislocation is starting to become exhausting. Dislocation is a good word to hang on to this morning. Dislocation is another way of saying out of place. If you have a dislocated finger, the bones of your finger are out of place. And dislocation hurts. Anybody have a dislocated finger? It hurts. It's not comfortable. Well, at this cultural moment, it is beginning to feel like Orthodox Christians are more and more out of place. As one person put it, there was a time when putting your church membership on your resume would help you get your job. Now it's possible that it could hurt you. And so I think we can all admit, to some degree or another, it feels like we are out of place at work, maybe out of place in our neighborhoods, maybe even in our own families. And the word that Peter uses to describe this experience of being out of place in the first century is exile. So again, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, he describes the earliest church as exiles and sojourners. So they had a home address in the Roman Empire, but even so they felt less and less at home. This is what one scholar summarized as social dislocation. Their lives were changed by Jesus, and many were surprised to find out that this created for them a social dislocation in their life. And so Peter spends this entire letter preparing them, equipping them to live in this tension. This is why Canadian theologian Gordon Smith recommends that all Christians in the secular West study 1 Peter. This letter frames our sense of dislocation, but more importantly, Peter's letter teaches us how to live faithfully as exiles. And how to manage what I will call exilic 
exhaustion. Because let's be honest, it is exhausting to live as a Christian these days. It can be. And I'm observing, I'm observing personally four different responses to this exhaustion. Capitulation, assimilation, retaliation, and insulation. This is my own observation. I haven't done a study. But we capitulate. This is when we simply give up. The pressures of being in exile mount. We're just too tired and we capitulate. Or we assimilate. This is when we tweak the faith to reduce the tensions that we feel. So Dick Kais calls this temptation chameleon Christianity. We blend into our surroundings to reduce the tension we feel. We assimilate. Or we retaliate. This is when we fight against those who we think make our life more exilic. Not exotic, exilic. And so we fight. We enlist ourselves in the culture war. And we live our entire Christian life in a battle stance against cultural forces that endanger our Christian comfort. We retaliate. Or we insulate. This is when we huddle and we hide. We create our own enclave of like-minded people to feel safe and to, again, restore our sense of comfort. While Peter's letter actually avoids all of these approaches and offers what I think is a better way, and what is the answer then to exilic exhaustion? For Peter, it is gospel astonishment. Gospel astonishment. And in particular, astonishment about two things. Number one, astonishment about our place in God's story. Look again at verses 10 through 12. Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them These prophets was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now finally been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. What is Peter doing here? What is he doing? He's trying to get these exhausted exiles excited about the gospel again. That's what he's trying to do. And here he reminds them of their amazing role in the drama of redemption. If you ever did high school drama, I did not. But if you ever did high school drama, there was a time when roles were passed out. And I'm willing to bet there's always somebody that had the most amazing role. And you looked down and you saw that you just had maybe just a few lines. What Peter's trying to do here is say, you guys have been given an amazing role. An amazing role. The prophets of old spent their lives, literally spent, literally spent their lives dreaming, searching, laboring with all their might, depending on the Holy Spirit to learn and then proclaim how God might rescue his people. That's verses 10 and 11. And then Peter says, all of that effort was actually not for themselves, but for you. What this means is that you know more about God's rescue than Isaiah did. 
What this means is that you know more about God's rescue than Ezekiel did, and Moses even, and that sounds wrong to even say, but it's true. Peter tells us, we know about Jesus, the Messiah. We know that he died for us on the cross. We know that he was raised for us on the third day. We know that he is coming back to make all things new. We know God's rescue. We stand on the other side of the cross and resurrection so that they were straining their necks to see what was right under our noses. And Peter's like, that is amazing. Get excited about that. Do not forget how amazing your role is in the drama of scripture and the drama of redemption. So my friend Luke likes to compare the Bible to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so this would be like someone who only gets to see the first few movies of phase one, which is great, but it's not the same as watching Endgame in all of his glory. This is such an amazing privilege to be on this side of the climax of God's redemption. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, the promise of return from the Lord Jesus. This is such an amazing privilege that even the angels who do not need the gospel stretch their necks also. It says in this passage that they long to see what is under our nose. Friends, the only way I believe to deal with exilic exhaustion is gospel astonishment. Nothing else will do. Stand amazed at your place in God's drama. Gospel astonishment in our place in God's drama, but also gospel astonishment in our status in God's eyes. Our place and now our status. When we read this passage, and when we read it earlier, you probably only noticed some hefty commands, if you're like me. And we'll get to those. But first, we need to be astonished by our God-given Status in this text. So we are hardwired for some reason to only see commands, to only see in the Bible what we are to do. But that means that we often miss what God has already done and promises to do. So one man, Steve Brown, used to say, from time to time you need to look at the Bible verses that are not underlined in your Bible. Because too often we underline the what we do verses in our Bible. And what that means is we miss out on the what God does and what God has done once and for all for us. And that is so true in this passage. Because in this passage I see four places where it is assumed we are these amazing things in God's eyes. Number one, we are pursued by God. Verse 12, Peter tells us that the prophets of God all along serving those who would know and trust Jesus. That's you. That's me. The past 2,000 years as a church, that shows the pursuit of God. And then in verse 20, Peter tells us that the eternal pre-existent Son of God was made flesh at this moment in history. Why? For the sake of you. Peter's words. For the sake of you. This means that Christians are not just 
impersonally rescued or impersonally saved or impersonally tolerated by the God who saves. No, this means that they are served, that they are pursued, that they are sought, that they are delighted in by God himself. And that is your status. We are also children of God. Look at verse 14 and verse 17. We are described as those who can call on God as father, which is no small thing. If you trust us in Jesus and you are adopted into God's family by grace, Jesus is your older brother. And the same access and intimacy that Jesus has with the father, so also do all who are united to Christ. And that means we are children of God. We have intimacy with the almighty. We are children of God. We are also called by God. In verse 15, we are described as those who are actually called by God. Now, this isn't the same thing as being called on in class. This isn't the same thing as being called on the phone. This isn't the same thing even as being called into active duty. No, this is a much higher level. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, that God has called you out of darkness and into light. So whatever Peter means by call, it has to include this dramatic rescue out of darkness, out of helplessness, out of death, and into light and life. So to be called by God is to be rescued out of death. It is to be rescued out of something absolutely desperate. It's like creation itself. Darkness and light. You are a new creation. You've been called by God to himself. The New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner makes a crucial point about divine calling in this text. And he says this should underline every single command that we encounter, which we will look at. Our pursuit of holiness, for instance, is not to be in a place of nearness to God. Our pursuit of holiness is exactly because we have been called into nearness to God. our, our Our status is holy. We are called saints in the Bible. So our pursuit of holiness is not in order to attain what is already ours. And that needs to frame every single command of the scripture. Our obedience to God's pathways of life. We offer it. Not to be saved. But because we already are. We are called by God. And then fourthly, we are ransomed. Ransomed by God. Read verse 18 again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So as I said earlier, to be ransomed is to be purchased out of slavery. What Peter calls in this text our empty patterns of life. What paid the price for this rescue? Well, Peter says, not something as costly as silver and gold, but something far more precious, something far more costly, the blood of Jesus, which is another way of saying the death of Jesus on the cross. Peter describes Jesus' death in terms of a sacrificial lamb in this text. He died in our place. He died for us. He died to ransom His people from slavery. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb whose blood liberates us from bondage. 
and even as it covers our sins. Ransom. If your trust is in Jesus, he not only died for the penalty of your sins, but he actually died to free you, to rescue you from the power of sin. You are no longer in bondage. You are free. And you are called out of darkness into light, meaning you are now free to be who you created to be all along. Scholar N.T. Wright compares God's ransom to a broken bowl found in a junk shop. Now, if any of you do antiquing, I know you do. This might be helpful. Wright compares ransom to someone who has eyes to see in a junk shop a porcelain bowl. It might be cracked. It might be covered up. But this person has eyes to see that this bowl was actually valuable porcelain. And so this person bought it. This person cleaned it. This person restored it to its original purpose. That is redemption. That is ransom. A purchase was made to restore something. Languishing. Dehumanized. To be restored to their original purpose. And with that... If your trust is in Jesus, then that is you, my friends, by the death of Jesus. Remember, gospel astonishment is the only answer to exilic exhaustion. That's Peter's approach. When we're tempted to give up, we need to stop and remember two things. Our place in God's drama and our status in God's eyes. Our place in God's drama and our status in God's eyes. We are pursued by God. We are a child of God. We are called by God. We are ransomed by God. And we have, we are on this side of the cross. We are called to be on mission to proclaim this amazing ransom. Now, we are ready to ask the question. What does this mean practically for you? How does this astonishment change the way I live? What are the life-giving practices that I could cultivate and do? What is the fruit, in other words, that grows from a heart that is astonished by the gospel? Well, Peter tells us. In fact, Peter gets kind of Presbyterian on us and gives us three basic imperatives, three commands in this passage. They are set your hope, be holy, and fear God. Those are the three main do this things in this text. Which means you are called in this exile to think ahead, set your hope, stay weird, be holy, and live with reverent joy, fear God. First, you will think ahead. The first command is embedded in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope. Set your hope on what? Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, exhausted exiles must set their hope to the future. We like to say at Hope Church that hope is more than wishful thinking. Hope is not simply, ah, I really hope something happens. No, biblical hope is a living in light of a certain future. That's what biblical hope is. 
If many of you are have planned a vacation, you are living in hope about that vacation. It's been planned. It's been paid for. You, you already swiped the card for the Airbnb. It's going to happen. And so living in hope is, is oriented, packing towards that event. Changing your schedule towards that event. It's living today in light of tomorrow. And that's what Peter says is the task of the exile. We don't simply look forward at what is under our nose always and then define our lives according to what is happening today so much as what is sure to happen in the future. Peter clarifies his future hope with two clauses in this text. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So... Preparing your minds for action is actually a phrase, literally in the Greek, that means gird your minds. Gird your minds. So in those days, Greco-Roman citizen would gird up when they had to run. Because they wore long flowing robes. And so they had to tuck their robe into their belt. They had to gird themselves in order to be able to run or to be free. Let me ask you a quick question. What is the difference between a serious biker and a recreational biker. Anybody? Shaved legs. I was thinking spandex. So we're on the same wavelength there. Serious bikers wear tight clothes. Recreational bikers, they can wear bell bottoms. Doesn't matter. Just be sure to French roll the right bell bottom. Or get stuck in your gear. Well, Peter is saying Christians should dress their minds in biker shorts. I don't know how else to put it. Gird your minds. We live in hope by thinking well, by thinking ahead. We connect our thoughts to our future hope. Girding our mind means we seek to align our thoughts with truth and with God's good ways. It's like effort. It's effort. I know it's effort. It's effort. But we do it. We gird our minds. We also are sober-minded. Peter clarifies what he means to set our hope with the phrase, be sober-minded. Hopeful people do all they can to stay sensitive to God. Sobriety of the mind is when we don't get inebriated on created things instead of the Creator. So he's not just talking about booze here. He's talking about our work, our goals, our possessions. Anything that can dull, anything that can blunt, anything that can choke our sensitivity to God. All of these good things can do that if they become supreme in our heart. They can dull our need for Jesus. So that it is to be hopeful is to stay sensitive to God. So exhausted exiles are those who are astonished by the gospel by thinking ahead. They won't live their lives in light of what lies ahead, but what is in front of them. So let me just say, by way of encouragement, if all you think about these days is what is hard right now, or what is challenging right now, or what is discouraging right now, or your fears right now, if that's all you're thinking, it will be very difficult to press on. And so we can take Peter's words here to heart and say, okay, I need to balance the hard things that I'm thinking about today with the short things that'll happen. You will think ahead. The other thing we'll do is you will stay weird. Okay? You'll stay weird. Uh, This is the essence of Peter's command in verse 15. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what does it mean to be holy? Peter tells us in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. So holiness is non-conformity. Holiness is not conformity to the world. It's not conformity to our former desires. But instead, conformity to the Lord Jesus. And that will often mean that we are set apart in very significant ways in this world. Sometimes it means there's overlap. Like, I love the overlap. I'm just speaking personally. I love the overlap. But the things that make me weird in my neighbor's eyes, it's hard. It's hard for me. So I need Peter's words. I need Peter's words a lot. Especially these days. This set-apartness will often make us a bit strange. And I think that's a good thing. In the Bible, set-apartness or holiness or difference or strangeness in the Lord was always meant to bless those in your midst. So this is the framework change we need to have. Think about salt. We've talked about salt before. Salt doesn't work unless two things are happening with salt. Number one, salt is different than the thing you're using the salt with. And number two, salt is immersed in the thing you're using the salt with. Difference and immersion. Both have to be true. Now what happens is we usually are immersed but not different, or different but not immersed. The Bible, Jesus himself, calls us to be salt, meaning to be in the world, but also to be different, meaning we're not just different for different sake, but we are being conformed to Jesus. And when that creates difference, guess what? That means you are on mission. And God might providentially, this is from Gordon Smith, have us in this cultural moment to be precisely different in all the ways that Jesus likeness makes us different. Holiness is a blessing. We have to believe this. It's a blessing. Holiness is a blessing to those in our midst. It's a blessing. Public theologian for Christianity Today, Russell Moore, he says, Christians be strange, but not crazy. Peter's words, be holy, but also sober-minded. I think it was him who also said, stay weird. That's a great way to summarize our posture as hope, as a church. We are in exile, so don't be surprised, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed, don't be angry at all the ways that we are weird in this world. Stay strange. Stay sober-minded. And then finally, and lastly, we will live with reverent joy. So Peter puts it this way in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So this command names an apparent paradox in the Bible called often the fear of the Lord. On the one hand, God is father, but he is also judge. Now, all of those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the scriptures also point to a future judgment for our deeds, the things that we do on this earth. And he is both Father and Almighty. And so we can have a surety, we can have a confidence, we can have a gospel rest that there is no condemnation for us on that judgment day. But we also can have a reverence because God is holy, he is judge. And when we remove one of these dynamics, Father, I mean the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Father Almighty. That's a beautiful, like, just poetic, boom, 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 right there. God is Father and Almighty, both. 
When we remove one of those, we get into trouble. So Father, without Almighty, we are flippant before the Lord. Almighty without Father, and we're scared of God. Both are needed, and both lead to what I will call reverent joy. Reverent joy. So one scholar compares the fear of the Lord to a confident driver on a highway. I've been doing a lot of highway driving, so this resonated with me. They respect the fact that they're driving like a metal uh, hunk, like a, like a missile, basically, going 80 miles per hour. A confident driver respects the fact that there are 80 mile per hour missiles heading towards them as well. And they understand and have a sort of fear of what this fast vehicle can do. When we see accidents, we are reminded again and fresh of what this thing can do. And so this author writes, a confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident. I was recently in the New River Gorge and I saw climbers doing two things at once. Number one, climbing with joy. Number two, climbing with deep reverence. What do I mean? Well, they had helmets on and they had a belayer at the bottom and they were doing all their safety checks. They had a healthy respect for that rock and for gravity. And yet they were happy. They were so happy. And that is the fear of the Lord. We are His. He is holy, but He's on our side. And so we are in exile, which means we are susceptible to exilic exhaustion. And so let's ask God to use this text to cultivate gospel astonishment in our lives. And when He does, may our lives be marked by hope, by holiness, and by reverent joy. Jesus, make this so. We ask, Lord, that even as we approach this table this morning, that we would understand the great cost by which this place at the table was bought. Our ransom by your blood and your body, by your death on the cross. And so would we approach this table with reverence, but also a deep joy? Would we approach this table with worship, in other words? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.